Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January 21st, 2014. This is episode 1284 of the Survival Podcast, and I got a good one for you today. We're going to talk about hunting today, and even if you never want to ever kill an animal, you're going to like today's show. Because, well, I would say if you have any interest, and understanding animals, and understanding sport, and understanding the components of hunting, you will enjoy this show even if you never actually want to partake in the final component, which is the the, the taking of a life. I got a question last week from a young lady that said, I want to learn how to hunt, and I don't know Jack Diddley anybody uh, that knows anything about hunting. I don't have any access to land, and I, I said, you know, one of the best things you could do is take up hunting without a weapon. And I gave kind of a 10-minute answer. And I thought, at the end of that answer, you know, this could actually be formulated into a real process for people, an educational process. And I could put it into a formula that would help people either learn to hunt or even people that are hunters become better hunters by solving one of the biggest problems with hunting. Um, and I'll get to what that is in a bit. Before I do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is for you here five days a week, Monday through Friday. Hey, you're going to get out and hunt. Maybe you need some tactical gear. Yeah, tactical is also practical when you think about the fact that many of the needs that you have in a tactical field, you have in the sporting field as well. And you can find all of that tactical stuff at Sawtooth Tactical, uh, Sawtooth Tactical located at sawtac.com. I mean, Maxpedition Bags. Um, Magpul magazines, the awesome titanium spork, and everything you can think of in between, you will find it all at Sawtac. And if you are a member of our support brigade, of course, you get a discount from everything at Sawtooth Tactical. Next up, Western Botanicals. Hey, after you get out on a day of uh, simulated hunting like I'm going to talk about today, maybe you're a little achy and sore. Don't reach for that bottle of uh, Motrin or Tylenol. Maybe consider using something natural and gentle that uh, that helps with aches and pains like turmeric or a, a good herbal rub or balm. You can find all of that and more at Western Botanicals, and they're real people that really care about you. If you're not sure what you need to do for your for your own needs and you call them up and talk to them, they can help you make those decisions. And they're a huge supporter of the Member Support Brigade. Check this out. They have a premium membership. It's 50 bucks. okay? If you are an MSB member, there's instructions for how to call them and have them set that premium membership up, ship up for you for free. That basically pays for your first year of Member Support Brigade. How cool is that? Uh, and then you get 25% off everything they sell. And if you want to keep that membership after the first year, they'll let you renew do for half price, which is uh, 25 bucks. Another quick note, if you use the Western Botanicals banner on the TSP website, you have the opportunity to actually, if you don't even want to be an MSB member, but you want the Western Botanicals discount membership, they'll sell it to anybody at the uh, t out of the TSP audience for half price of 25 bucks. Either you get it for free if you're a member of the Support Brigade, or you get it for half price right away if you're not. And you can find out by linking to their site from our banner. Best way to visit Sawtooth Western Botanicals and all our sponsors is from the survivalpodcast.com, so you know you're dealing with one of my actual sponsors. Speaking of the MSB, our featured discounter today that's not an actual show sponsor, just a uh, supporter that does discounts for you, Dark Angel Medical, a veteran-owned business with a combined 
combined 20 years of experience in medical training and work, both in the field and civilian healthcare fields. They provide a 10% discount on all products, including their direct action response kit uh, and their individual first aid kits. Uh, you can learn more at darkangelmedical.com. And if you want to buy from them, remember, if you're a support brigade member, you do get that 10% discount. On that note, if you're not yet an MSB member, consider joining the member support brigade. You'll help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service. And first responders like EMTs and paramedics and firefighters also active duty or prior service. You can save even more money on the member support brigade by emailing me before, not after you join. If you do that, I'll send you a discount code to thank you for your service that will... Uh, Give you a great discount on an already good price. To learn more about the Members Brigade, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members or the Member Support Brigade in the right-hand banner, and you can see how to sign up for that. It really is a great deal. Uh, I've started featuring one discount a day just to give you a feel for how many discounts there really are. Uh, it really is a membership that pays for itself, and it's how we support you know what we do around here. So if you can, uh, if you like the show and you want to make sure that we're here for you know for a long time to come, and we will be one way or another. Um, but really, it is how you support the show, and uh, I did try to do it in a way that would make it, at least for most people, uh, a product that would pay for itself. On that note, how'd you like it for free? How'd you like to be an MSB member for free? I have a way you can do that. It's not for everybody. It's just a contest. I'm going to give away some memberships. I'm going to give away one lifetime membership. That's $300 is what we sell that for. Um, when it's available. And I only let it, you know, release it a couple times a year, three or four times a year at the most. I take like 10, 15 people when I do it. Um, so it's not even really available. There is kind of a backdoor. You can find it. Sometimes people do, but, uh, I really, it's there because a programmer set it up and I don't know how to take it away. That's the truth about that. Um, but I'm going to give away one today. And, uh, I'm also going to give away two regular one year memberships. Now, if you're already a member, You can and you win. You can extend your membership with it, or you can give it to somebody else uh, if you want to gift it. So you know, play regardless. And it's real simple. My intern Josiah Wallingford is doing a great job with his website, BrinkOfFreedom.net. The most amazing collection of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and liberty-oriented content I've ever seen put together. And guys, five months ago, this thing was an idea, not a site. Uh, amazing contributors he's got there. He's doing great things with his digital magazine. All you have to do to be entered to win uh, a free MSB membership is between now and Sunday, go over to brinkoffreedom.net and uh, subscribe to his newsletter. And there's a post out on, on TSP today where you can click a link and do that. So consider that. Next up, quick announcement. I have plenty of seats remaining still for the uh, battery backup workshop and bonus clinics with uh, Stephen Harris where we're going to make You know, we're going to show you how to turn a truck into a mobile power station. Yesterday, I, I noted that um, that if you did this, you would know how to do solar because it's only one more step and it's the easy step. Well, Steve's talked me into I'm going to pick up a solar panel for my system. Some of the other students may may as well, but it will be at least one. So this will be now a complete workshop. Stationary battery banks, mobile battery banks, and integration of solar power. So when you are done with this... You will be able to absolutely, if you want to, let's say a small cabin or something like that, go in and install an off-grid solar system. You will know everything you need to know to do that. So if you haven't signed up yet and you've been thinking about it, please consider coming out and joining us. Right now I think I've got like eight or nine people for that workshop. I really need about 15, 16 to make these things viable, especially this one with Flying Steve in from Pennsylvania and stuff like that. So I really need some more folks. 
Um, I will say this. If anybody really, really wants to come, is okay with the price, and just really can't do it in a lump sum, you need some kind of an installment program, I cannot do that for everybody. I have a lot of upfront costs in this. But if you will email me individually about it, we'll work something out. I could probably do that for a few people here and there. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of uh, today's show, or actually the, the main parts of today's show. I want to real quick hit our history segment, the year 1284. That's a long time ago. I'm going to tell you the origin of a story I'm sure you've heard. The Pied Piper makes off with 130 children. Do you know this was based on something that really happened? There really was a Pied Piper, sort of, kind of? Here's what it says in the year 1384 in the Hamlin Town Chronicles. It is 100 years since our children left. This is from Alex Shrugged. Alex says, you know all the facts available. The children left in the town mourn their leaving. There are no primary sources. There was a stained glass window in the Hamlin Church, now destroyed, showing a piper in the children, no rats. In the 16th century, rats were added to the story, probably because of the memories of the plague rats. Most likely the children left for Transylvania because younger Germans, not necessarily little children, were moving it to empty land since their elder siblings inherited anything of worth, leaving the youth to serve as their serfs. There is also a suggestion that they joined the so-called Children's Crusade, but most scholars have doubts about that theory. Your guess is as good as mine. Here's Alex's take. The story points to the problems of inheritance where one was not allowed to move around much. It wasn't just a problem for noblemen. On the other hand, there wasn't much of a retirement plan in those days, so you had to produce as many children as possible in hope that enough would survive to adulthood to take care of you in your dotage. But what happens when too many children survive? They needed to move on to other lands. Um, it's true. It's true. And basically in this time, the eldest son inherited everything. And if anybody else got anything, it was at his, it was at his discretion. So the, the eldest son could say, brother, you have been a good brother. And though I've inherited all of father's lands, here's something of your own. But if you had 12 kids, You know, first you're trying to marry off the women. It's just the way it was. Don't get mad at me. It's just the way it was. And then you can only divide things up so much. And, you know, a lot of these people, like you said, it wasn't just noblemen. They didn't have all huge lands. Sometimes it was very small holdings. So it didn't quite work out that way for most people. And even if it did, you can only go so many generations of cutting something in half before it's not sustainable anymore is, is something that will provide for a family. So these people had to leave, go find other things, other places to be. And it's a big part of probably what led to the expansion of people throughout Europe and Asia and other places as well was just simply people had to leave. But I'd like to tell you another little thing that this makes me think of. Catholic Church and priests not getting married. Um The, the, the vow of celibacy in the priesthood and, and not getting married is not something that goes all the way back to the origins of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church actually was getting torqued off because bishops and the like would acquire lands and then, you know, they would die because even though they were bishops, it doesn't, you know, or cardinals or whatever, it didn't mean they lived forever, right? So they would become quite powerful as noble clergy, so to say. And if their eldest son was like, 
I'm not going to be a priest. I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. They inherited all the lands, and the church saw this as a loss to them because the lands went outside of the church. So they instituted a policy of priests not marrying so that whatever be acquired by the clergy would remain in the possession of the church. It's why we still have a, a Catholic church today where priests can't get married. It's why I think even though I'm no longer Catholic, I'm no longer anything really, um, I, I think that should be changed. I think Catholics should demand it um, because it doesn't make any sense. That's no real justification for that anymore. Um, it is tradition. It is not religion. They're two totally different things. And it's also why the Catholic Church is probably the richest organization in the world today. Now you know. So let's get into the main topic of today's show. Let's talk about hunting. And again, this goes back to last week. A gal asked about this and said, how do I get some hunting experience if I don't have any hunting experience, and I don't know anybody that does, and I don't know anybody with land that will let me hunt on it. I'm just kind of stuck. I'm sitting here in the middle of Austin. I want to hunt. No one cares. What do I do? And my solution, and, and my summarized solution, was go find some public land that maybe isn't open to hunting at all. You know, it could be a nature refuge, a wildlife refuge, a big park, whatever it is, or even land that you can gain access to any, any way that you can that has a game on it and start practicing your hunting without a gun. Because then no one will care. You're just taking a walk or you're sitting under a tree. Um, you're writing in a journal. You're taking a picture. You're not doing anything that would require even a hunting license. So the prohibition of no hunting on this property doesn't apply. It certainly does if it says no trespassing. So you've got to think about that. So that was the basic components. But I want to talk about, before I get into how to do this, the reasons that I come up with, with this solution And it really is the three primary barriers, the three primary hurdles that keep people who've never hunted from hunting. The first one is land access. When people think, I want to go hunting, the, the first logical question is, where? Where am I going to hunt? You know, they might think, what do I want to hunt first? Deer, turkey, hogs, squirrels, birds, whatever. But in essence, even, even if that's the case, a lot of times the where will give you the what. So if you knew I can go hunting over at this place and it's like a, it's a big lake and it's got public access hunting, you, you might be hunting ducks and geese because, well, that's what's there. But how do you even find that place? So the, the, the first barrier is generally land access. I need a place to hunt. And in a lot of states, the public hunting land is either not that great or so overrun with hunters, people don't really want to hunt there. And I think there's a mistake in that. I think in a lot of, a lot of places that there's very large tracts of public land and with a little bit of knowledge and research, you can end up finding parts that are not heavily hunted and you can do quite well on public land. Most of the hunting I did in Pennsylvania was on public land or it was on private property that we didn't pay for. We just simply asked permission. And it was, those places were to me a lot like public land because a lot of them were larger farms and larger land holdings where They said yes to anybody who asked. And plenty of people just hunted there without asking, which is not a good idea, but it was so open that people just felt that way. And then there's, you know, state forests. In some states you can hunt. In some states you can't. You have to find out your own local laws. But just finding a place you can hunt that you can get to frequently is generally one of the big problems, which leads right to the next one, time. Time is a huge problem for people. This is why... Hunting operations that, you know, 
in, in the South that use deer over feeders, feeder, you know, hunt over feeders are so successful. Because a person can drive down Thursday night, you know, stay Friday and Saturday, shoot a couple deer and come home and know they're going to have success. And most people would prefer not to do that. Even the people that do it all the time, even the people that grew up with it, they really know it's kind of not hunting. It is, but it isn't. It's more like picking one out and shooting it. Somebody else has done all the work for you, and plus the animal's been keyed in on a feeder. Uh, or even some guided hunts are like that, where they put you on a stand, maybe not over a feeder, but the animals have been patterned, they know where they are. This is usually in states where it's not legal to do the feeder thing, so they know, well, the animals come here, and we'll talk about some of these other things. The animals come here every night to feed on the South Alpha field. This is a primary access point. So you get there, they put you in that stand, you wait, you see an animal, you shoot it. Uh, or you're with a guide who, who guides you through that process. And that the reason that that's become so popular is that people don't have the time. Because as you're going to see today, a lot of times hunting is so much more about preseason than it is about the season. The preseason in hunting is a lot more important than the preseason in football. Let me put it to you that way. And that takes time. And then when you couple that with land access, the problem becomes, well, I have access to this deer lease that's four and a half hours away. Now, when I take a few days off of work and go hunting down there on that deer lease, the four hours is not a hurdle. But if I want to get out there twice a week for the next eight weeks in scouting missions, it's a hurdle. I got things to do, like raise a family, work a job, keep the homestead going on and on and on and on. And the less you live out in the country, the more this will be true. The further you live out in the country, the more likely it is that it will be some piece of land you can have access to um, for hunting that you can get to frequently. And the further you live in towards cities and towns, the less that's likely to be the case. Not always true, but less likely to be the case. But what goes up generally when you get into places where you're closer to cities and towns, unless it's like New York City and you're in Central Park, you're not going to be able to do much of this there. But generally, most cities, especially with the restoration of wildlife habitat that's gone on in the last 50 years, somewhere near that city or town, within an hour's drive or less, will be some type of a wildlife refuge, public access area, something like that that will have game on it. In the eastern United States and even quite a bit of the western United States, number one big game animal, white-tailed deer. Some places it's elk, etc. But odds are you have access to land somewhere within an hour or less that's reasonable in size, true to form and habitat. What I mean is you're not driving around like a glorified zoo, and you're not dealing with animals that are so desensitized that it's not it's not very valuable to, to, to learn with. A place I can tell you that would fit the example of you have plenty of public access, lots of habitat, lots of people around too, though, and the deer are so desensitized it's pointless would be um, Valley Forge in, in Pennsylvania near Philadelphia where Washington, you know, overwintered uh, during the Revolution. It's an interesting historical site. There are deer everywhere. It's a great place to take pictures of deer, but they're scrawny deer because they're overpopulated because they're not hunted. And there's so many people there all the time that you can literally walk within, you know, I'd say 20 feet of almost any deer you see. And this is not going to teach you what you need to know. So what you need is public land that you can access. And you don't, have to, the, the beauty of this method I'm talking about today is you don't have to be able to hunt there. And that time equation leads right into the next problem, knowledge. People don't know how to hunt. 
People don't know what the animals do. People don't know the animals' patterns. People don't know the signs. You don't know how to read the sign, read the tracks. You see sign of game, but you don't know how to tell if that sign is fresh. Or does it matter? We'll get into some of these things later, but knowledge. And the key thing with knowledge is, even people that have land access and have enough time to get out and hunt, but not enough time for the preseason stuff, will be curtailed in their gaining of knowledge. Because if you think about it this way, let's say you have access to the ground and you can hunt deer. Let's say you live in a state where you can shoot a couple deer a year. Let's say that the area has quite a bit of deer on it. Let's say that you go out and hunt on weekends during the hunting season. Let's say the hunting season is four weekends long. Your total experience points for you gamers is eight days. Saturday and Sunday, four weeks, that's it. Now, some states still prohibit Sunday hunting, which is just one of those stupid blue laws. In that situation, if you can only hunt weekends and your season's four weeks long, you get four days of experience points every year. Ten years, 40 days where it's really easy to build 40 days of experience points, so to speak, with what I'm going to talk about today. So the knowledge hurdle has to be addressed through time on the ground in the woods with the animals. Observation and interaction like permaculture. Maybe it's why I embrace permaculture so quickly that I would say true hunting, tracking, patterning, understanding wildlife, seeing how they relate to food sources is basically... How we learn permaculture in the first place, we just take it into, in permaculture, more about the plants than the animals. And maybe that's a mistake for some people, honestly. Um, next thing I want to talk about before I get into some of the techniques here is hunting with a camera. Uh, quite a few people suggested hunting with a camera in last the last episode where we mentioned this uh, briefly. Uh, I think it's cool. I think it's great. I think it's a good idea. I think that you shouldn't kid yourself, though, in, in a bunch of ways. Number one, a camera doesn't mount like a rifle, okay? It just doesn't. So being able to hold a camera and take a picture and have the animal centered in the frame of the picture is not the same as putting a bullet into a lethal area on the animal, period. Next, you will not experience a, rise, a rising heartbeat to the level you will when, when the animal's life is on the line and you have to do your job. Your adrenaline will not surge You will not question yourself. You will not doubt yourself. You will not think, if I don't do this right, I can cripple this animal. You will not be under the stress of pulling off the shot and doing it right and doing it well because it won't be real and you'll know it. The motions are the same, but it's not the same. I did find a kind of a cool rifle prototype thing online with a scope on it and all, and you would sit with this rifle and you would fire the shot and no bullet would come out. And it would take a picture with a crosshair overlay where you'd know exactly where that bullet would hit. That's still limited. Um, at 50 yards, it's probably a good approximation of where that bullet would impact. And you could honestly then look in the image and say, well, I thought that was a clean shot. Now let's look at the image blown up and see what I've hit a stick or a stump or something that would have knocked it off track possibly. But at 300 yards, that bullet has an arc. Right, So if you're sitting there clicking pictures with this rifle thingy at 300 yards, these nice blown-up pictures of deer or elk with crosshairs on them, there's no guarantee that just because you had the crosshairs in the right place, that's where it would hit. In fact, it wouldn't, and it would all be about trajectory and ballistics and things that we're not going to get into today. So all I want to say about cameras is they're a great idea. If you're going to do this, I definitely recommend taking a camera with you. Um, 
a really, really cool idea, in fact. But just don't think, because you took a picture of an animal, you would have been able to shoot it. You may very well have. But don't let the, the, the limits of reality escape you in, in camera hunting. Uh, next thing I'm going to recommend is you keep a game log. And uh, you can do this on your smartphone. You can do this on a tablet. You can do this you know, by jotting things down and on a laptop. But what I really recommend is a good field journal that you can write in. Um, I'm going to actually recommend on some levels, initially at least, especially when you're doing stand hunting, you turn your phone completely off, not just put it in solid mode, and put it away. Because the temptation while you're sitting there on a stand to start playing Sudoku or Bejeweled or whatever it is people are playing or Angry Birds or whatever the hell it is might be pretty high. Or to pull up and start reading your Kindle. And really you should be teaching yourself to observe and interact and listen and hear and pick up on things that you would normally miss. So if you have something like that, you're more likely to be tempted. And it's probably better that you don't. And a lot of things that you don't think make sounds make sounds. And this is not just lollygagging walking through the woods. This is simulated hunting. That means if you own a watch with, with, with a, a dial on it, old school watch, not a digital, and it goes tick, 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 and you think it can't be heard, well, the first time you sit completely alone in the woods, in the silence, how loud it'll be. Take it off. Don't wear that in the field. You can hear it, then a deer can hear it a lot further away than you can. Okay? So that's that's another little thing I wanted to throw in there. The game log, I recommend a good, you know, bound book. You can write in January 4th, observe two deer uh, eating acorns, whatever. You know, and start giving sectors that are not named in these areas your own names. If you talk to hunters that have experienced hunting places like um, my my family, we hunted a place called Pine Hill. And um, up on that mountain, we had things like the old mine, the funnel, the black desert, right? The scrub oaks, the blueberry fields, right? And, and that way, when you were talking to another person about what you observed... And you're like, oh, I was on my way from the Black Desert over to the blueberry fields, and I saw this deer that kind of went down toward the funnel. They know what the hell you're talking about. And it's not just for telling somebody else. It's to keep it straight in your head where these areas are. So name these sectors and areas based on things that are relevant. Um, and you can even start to name animals. There's certain deer that will be characteristically different that you might name uh, with nicknames or, or, or surnames, whatever you want to do, but it starts to help you pattern and understand things, right? So um, game logs, are, to me, are very important. What I want to kind of tell you real quick before we move into game patterns, though, is why sometimes it seems so hard to find somebody to take you hunting or to work with you as a hunter uh, or to be a mentor. Um, it's not that people are assholes. It's not that, that hunters in general don't like the company of other hunters. It's that the biggest hurdle, as we said, is land access. And a lot of times places people hunt, especially if it's like places that are actually public or easy to acquire permission, 
are areas that have been handed down in a family or and amongst close personal friends only for years. Um, that's definitely the case with areas I hunted in Pennsylvania. I wouldn't share those locations with anybody unless they were a really close personal friend of the family or a family member. Um, and there's places like that with fishing, too, that are kind of secrets that are not secrets. Like, since nobody knows it's a secret, but anybody really could go there. There's a place that I took my wife and son fishing many times for the three years we lived in Pennsylvania, for instance. It's right off an interstate. Um, anybody that wants to could go there. But the way you get there is kind of a little funky looking, and there's a railroad uh, track that you have to walk across, and it's posted for no trespassing. But it's not the land, because the land is actually a little sliver of state game lands, but the tracks are posted so that the train, you know, the, the, the railroad is not liable if somebody gets run over by a train. So when you get to the end of this dirt road, you see all this no trespassing stuff, but they can impinge your right to cross the, the tracks. They're just saying you can't hang out on the tracks. So in years of fishing this place, I've never saw anybody there except one very close personal friend, some family members. That's it. Now, I obviously don't want to take some random person off the street and say, hey, there's this great place for smallmouth bass. Because the next thing I know, this place that I've been fishing for years, that my family's been fishing for years, I'm going to show up on the one day I get to fish, and there's going to be people lining up and down the river in my little holes that no one knows about because this water's all flat and there's several deep holes and in the summer these fish consolidate in this spot and it and there's hunting spots like that as well and people are really tight about giving things like this up because they're dealing with the same thing you are access and the truth is if that many people went to a place like this hunting or fishing it will ruin the productivity. So that's the big reason that people tend to not quickly embrace a new hunter. Plus, you don't know who you're dealing with. You could have some idiot. And it takes, and it's not that they think you are, it's that you could be, and they don't know you well enough yet to know whether or not that's you. You know, nobody wants to, like, take a newbie in, take them to their sweet spot, uh, be sitting on a deer stand, and all of a sudden hear them, you know, a hundred yards away playing video games. With the volume up. Or guy shows up and hadn't had a bath in three days and stinks to high heaven. You know? Or you look down and you can see down, you see the guy burning a cigarette or something. Nobody wants that in these areas. So that's why you can run into some headway and it takes a while to learn what you're doing and people know that and they're hesitant to bring you on board for, one, the, the knowledge that it gives you about the location, and two, the possibility that you're going to be disruptive. Even if you have no intention of telling anybody or being disruptive. They just don't know that yet. So if in developing relationships with other hunters and eventually ending up hunting with them, um, just understand it will take time. Conversely, the hunters that have deer leases and things like that, where it's private land, they're paying for access, they're going to be a lot less concerned because you're there as their guest or you're having to go in on it, and that access is limited. So <laughs> it's weird, but the places with limited access to public land generally have hunters more inclined to bring you in with them because there's already a barrier to entry that sorts people out. And most, most properties will only, you know, they have a property, they'll say we only lease eight guns, they'll call it. Which means only eight people can have a share in a lease. 
so they know that they're never going to have that problem. So it's it's that's that's the dynamic you're dealing with there. Let's get into actually hunting and understanding some patterns. I want to I'm going to give you some pattern information on white-tailed deer and then on squirrels because they're very different animals and they're both very good targets for this type of hunting and learning to understand game. Let's start out with white-tailed deer. Now, I could do 10 shows on white-tailed deer and not cover everything that there is. So you veteran white-tailed hunters, understand I'm going with the most basic things that people can use as a foundation to build on. And, you know, and also trying to not leave certain things out that are very important, that are so basic that I left one out already. Right now, as I'm saying this and I sound like I'm pausing, it's because I'm typing and reading the wind. Um, Because you have to pay attention to the wind when you're deer hunting. That's something so basic that I was throwing down a bulleted list, I left it out. Because... What deer hunter doesn't know that deer have an incredibly good sense of smell? You want to minimize your human odor. You have to think about wind currents. And when you're thinking about what direction the deer are going to be moving, you don't want to be in a position where your position uh, allows wind to take your scent down to the deer or that when the wind blows a lot and it's really noisy, the deer move less because they're more on edge because they know they can't hear as well. Um, there's, there's a lot to the wind, right? So... I want you to understand that what I'm giving you today is a starting point. It won't make you a great deer hunter. And if you are, you know, one of those people that has to critique what everything else does, and goes, I can't believe you left out. Understand, there's no way I could fit it all into a show today. It's 11:22 as I'm recording this this second, and I have an interview at 12:30 uh, where I have to be on with another guest, so I won't be able to cram everything in. Um, what I do want to talk about though is some basic things you need to understand about deer, and and one is what I just said, deer. Use their nose above all things to stay alive. They have an incredible sense of smell. Uh, I actually think deer probably have a sense of smell that would put most dogs to shame. And there's the, the truth is, like all these products like scent eliminators and stuff like that cover scents, they do not eliminate the deer's ability to smell you. What they do is reduce how intense your odor is to them and therefore make it more of a background thing and less alarming. That's it. That's all you can do. And you can take it to the extreme. When we used to bow hunt, for instance, I would wash all my clothing for hunting in unscented uh, soap first, and then I would wash it a second time with no soap. I would hang it out and line dry it, and then I would put it in a Rubbermaid tub, and in that Rubbermaid tub I would keep fresh pine bombs in there. Uh, so you had fresh pine branches in there, so there was this pine odor. And I would use some cover scent uh, as well uh, and other deer scents to do other things that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and still, if you had the wind hit your back of your neck at the wrong time, you heard, that's a, that's a snort, and that means you're busted and they're gone. Okay? So you have to think about wind. My go-to method for reading the wind is to reach down and pick up some dry leaves and make a fine powder out of them and drop them and just watch the direction they go. And when you're dealing with swirling winds and shifting winds, it makes things much more difficult. But just be aware of the wind and what the primary winds are. And one of the things in your journal is you might often find that, oh, well, I go in here, the wind's in my face, and that's good in the morning. But in the evening, the wind shifts. Most people that, that, you know, that, that there are fishermen that fish ponds um, in open areas 
are acutely aware, if they're shore fishermen specifically, where they sit on shore and fish, that winds often blow completely different primary directions evening and evening and morning, which are your primary times for game to move. So be aware of that wind and understand you're not always having to be directly where you got the wind straight in your face and the deer coming straight at you. You can have crosswinds and things like that, but you have to be aware. So you might have an avenue of approach that works, but once the animal crosses a certain line, the potential for them to pick your scent up increases. And if that's the case, you need to think about that and think about when to take the shot and engage the animal, even if they might present a little bit better of a target if they move further, but they might get into the point where they're going to pick up your scent. So reading the wind is important. It's really not a pattern, but I threw it in here because when I made this outline this morning, I really didn't leave myself a better place to put it, and I wanted to make the point of what can get left out when you're assuming the most basic things are known, because I'm assuming here they're not. Um, but I want to talk about the five most common things you can use as sign to know that deer are in an area. The first one is runs. Runs are just trails. So you're walking through the woods on, let's say, a human footpath. You know, it's used enough. And you'll see these little side trails sometimes that go off of them. Or you can even be, you know, following one of them and find other intersections and points. And it depends on how many animals are in the area. These things can look almost like little mini roads or they can be very subtle. And the only way I can tell you to figure them out is to look for other things we'll talk about here, um, like tracks and, and things like that. Um, but you will figure this out, what a run looks like in your area based on the population, the size of the animals, the vegetation, the regrowth rates, the seasonal patterns, only by getting out and doing it. There's no, I can't put a picture up and say, that's a deer run, and it always looks like that. I can put up a picture of a track and say, it might be bigger, it might be smaller, uh, a buck may be more inclined to leave hawk claw prints on the backside of the track, but basically a deer print looks like a deer print. A trail, a deer, a deer run, a primary access point where animals use it often and create a trail will look different depending on a ton of factors. But one of the best things you can do is understand the deer runs in your area because they will show you a lot of the other things we're talking about today, like seasonal effects, bedding, and feeding patterns. So by finding, those are the highways, those are the roads. But you got to understand something with a run. You can find a run that looks like it's very heavily used, and it might be, but it may not be heavily used in the time that you're hunting. I don't mean the time of day, that could be the case too, but in the season. You can sometimes find runs that are so heavily used at certain times of the year, even when they're not used for a long time, they stay very prominent. So you set up a stand, you think a deer has to come by sooner or later, it's like waiting for a car on the road, and you don't see jack diddly. Right? Now, this is weird because deer will generally have a home range of about a square mile, sometimes up to two, sometimes less. But most deer don't really go that far that often from their home territory. But they will have different areas that they hang out at different times. And you will walk by deer and sort of, God, there's no way a deer was there, and they'll be there. They can go through brush seamlessly. You could never fight your way through briars and burrs. And just, you, you wonder how they do it. You feel their fur when you've shot one. And it's, it's, it's like slick 
glass almost in, in going, you know, the, you know, from the head to tail when you feel it. They just slide through these burrs and stickers like you wouldn't believe. So you have to, when you find a run, temper it with looking for other sign. Um, I'm going to skip rubs and scrapes for now and go to droppings. Droppings are a clear indicator, and they can tell you by their absence or their condition if that run is not being used. If you find lots of droppings in an area, but they're all dry, pellet dried, there's nothing black and glossy, any moisture left in it, you're probably looking at a heavily used area that's not currently being heavily used. Either something has shifted the animals off of it, or the season has shifted them. There's a lot of great food and cover in that area at one time of the year, and they relate to a different food source or cover source at a different time of the year. So what you're seeing is a heavily used run that's not currently being heavily used. If it's being used with frequency, you should be able to find some droppings on it that are relatively fresh. They should look like raisinets, not dried out uh, feed pellets. That's the best way I can put it. You find them warm, the animal was just there. Yes, I will put my hand down and touch deer poo to find that out. Um, you see glossy, wet deer droppings, and they look like raisinets. Then you know you have an active area. Those animals were just there, and if you continue to see fresh droppings in an area you revisit, you know that that's an ongoing usage area. If it's March, it does not mean that when you're going hunting in November, they will still be using that area. They may very well be, but you'll have to gather more intelligence to determine that. Um, tracks. Tracks on most trails are not going to be very evident because the trails themselves are generally pretty packed down from the usage in the first place. Plus there's cover and there's all types of stuff there. But occasionally you'll find things like a road crossing or a muddy area, a wet area, a soft area where tracks are common. When you see tracks inside tracks inside tracks inside tracks, that's very, very heavy use. That's the animals are back and forth every day. When you see a couple tracks here and a couple tracks there, that's a much more occasional use or a solitary animal. These are not hard rules, but they're ways to start thinking about it. When you see like one set of tracks and that's it, that animal may never be back right in that area again. You really don't know. You have to kind of follow up on it. The thought usually with people that are new is I'll see a track and I'll follow tracks. It's probably not going to happen. There are things you can look for on trails that are deeper in the woods that don't have good track areas, though. The biggest one is to look for branches and limbs, etc., that are laying across the trail. Finding broken twigs and all, that's, that's Hollywood crap. It, it, and it, it does matter if it's a fresh break and you're tracking, let's say, an animal with a bullet or an arrow in it. But in general, there's a million reasons a couple twigs could be broken. The guy that came through yesterday, for instance. But deer have hooves. And when you have a larger log, let's say something the size of your leg, that's been there a while, that's kind of started to rot and start becoming part of the forest floor again, if deer are through that area a lot, there'll be nicks where their hooves nick that as they walk across it. You have to see it to know it. But when you see it, you will know it, just knowing to look for it. That's another way to tell that a run is active. It's really tracking on a different level. That's about as deep as I'm going to go with tracks today. I want to talk about something that often gets confused. Rubs and scrapes. A deer's rub is something a buck does, and only a buck does, where they take their antlers and they, they, they rub a tree, and they rub the bark off a tree. It'll look like somebody took a knife and just up and down and, and rubbed off a tree. Um, 
there's some use to them. They're not quite as valuable as finding scrapes. A rub is something a deer does out of a sense of territorial marking and aggression and instinct and sometimes misplaced aggression. In other words, he's had his ass kicked by a bigger buck. He doesn't have any, any does he can breed. Um, he doesn't have any smaller bucks he can beat up, so he's going to beat up a tree. There are people that believe that deer rub to get the velvet off their antlers. When an antler grows on a deer, while it's growing, it's tender and it gets hard, and then this, this stuff called velvet, it's like a furry hair, comes off. When they rub, if they still have some velvet, it does remove it. It's not why they do it. By the time the velvet's coming off, the horns are hard, they can't feel anything, they really don't care that it's there. It's a byproduct. It's, it's aggression, it's territorial marking, and it does tell you a deer's been there. Where it's really valuable is when you see trees that have been hammered on one side and the other along a run. And that tells you that deer is using that run bi-directionally, or that at least bucks are using it bi-directionally. If you have a place where the trees always, all the trees along a, rub, a run, a route, are rubbed on one side, that means that that run is pro probably being used mostly unidirectionally. Where if you have them on both sides, that means that they're coming. Because generally, it's not always the case, but if you find multiple rubs and they're all the same way, it gives you an indication. The deer doesn't rub the tree and then run around the other side and rub it. What they're doing is they're walking along and they smell something they don't like, they hear something they don't like, they're ticked off, they can't find anybody to beat up, they can't find anybody to breed, it's not breeding yet, the does aren't ready, but the bucks are, and there's a tree and I'm going to tear it up. And then they go on about their business. So it's generally focused on one side of the tree if it's a unidirectional run. Now, why might that be? Maybe, and this is getting the other pattern, maybe the animal in the evenings is traveling from a bedding area to a feeding area. But when it leaves the feeding area to come back to the bedding area, it's making a loop and it's using a different run. Why might it do that? It might do that because there's other resources that it picks up in those evening hours or nighttime hours on its way back. It may do that because of wind direction. Maybe the wind, it's using the wind to its advantage on the way to the feeding area, and it's more able to pick up the wind advantage on the way back. Okay, so that's one of the things you can learn. But a rub is basically just a buck with somewhere and rub a tree. It's a good sign, but just because I saw rubs in an area doesn't mean I'd set up a stand there. A lot of times they're rubbing pre-rut, which we'll talk about in a bit, and then they're scraping post during the rut. And they've stopped doing a lot of rubbing. Sometimes they are still rubbing. But they could have rubbed a lot in an area that they're not currently using. And because it's two or three weeks only, this is in hunting season now, the rub looks fresh to you, but it's really old. It's not really being hit. One of the things you can look for in a rub that tells you it's continuously being a hit or fresh is hair. When you see hair stuck in the rub from the animal's head, Usually when it's been there a while, most of that's gone. You can find deer hair in the tree. That's a good indicator. A big tree does not always indicate it was rubbed by a big deer. You can look at the rub and see like how much would it take to do that and, and what have you. But a small rack buck can do a lot of damage to a fairly large tree. And a big certain trees are easy to rub, and a deer will figure that out and just kind of like doing it, kind of like you like to scratch a certain itch, like cedars. Cedars soft bark, man, they'll rub the hell out of it. By the way... If you find a rub on cedar, there's a whole bunch of fire starting material underneath it. Beautiful fire starting material. And it's already off the tree, so you don't have to take it off the tree. So that's, that's a rub. A scrape is the, when you want to kill a buck, scrapes and finding them is kind of the holy grail. 
A scrape is where a deer will scrape the ground with its paws. They'll actually create a dirt area. It almost looks like you know turkeys or chickens where they're scraping things up and eating them, but they're isolated. You'll find four or five of them in an area. Usually you'll find branches and twigs hanging overhead of them, and what the deer does is he goes in there and he scrapes the ground and he pees in it. He'll often pee on his own back leg. There's a, a gland back there called the hawk gland and takes scent from both his urine and his hawk gland down into the scrape. This tells the does in the area, I am ready to make baby deers. Please tell me when you are ready to make baby deers with me. And he will, once they set up a scrape line is what it's called. It's usually not, like you don't usually find these like in a circle. You find them on a trail or in an area. He will keep coming back to those scrapes over and over again. And if he's not really close to those scrapes, and this is when he will leave. He will leave that small relative area, his home range. If a hot doe comes by and hits his scrape and he picks up her trail, he will be on her trail and he will not be back until they're done breeding. He's, he's on a mission now. And that's when smaller, lesser bucks will come in and, and hit his scrapes and steal his other does. Because he can only handle so many at once. It's not like an elk where they can hair him up. They go off and breed individually. Okay? So even if he's not there, you may be able to pick, if there's a lot of deer in the area and other bucks, you may be able to pick up somebody who thinks they're coming in on his absence. You can also make your own scrapes. There's basically buck lure that's designed for this. And what you're doing is you go in and you just create the same thing. Rubber boots are best. Make a scrape, put the dough, uh, the the buck lure in it, and maybe put a little bit up on the branch above. And if you can get a buck hitting that scrape, and especially a, a dominant buck, now he's like, "Who is in my area laying scrapes for my does? I am gonna bust some butt, man!" And that can trigger a very aggressive response and lure that deer in. These are all behaviors, though, that are isolated to the rut. The breeding season. This is usually a few weeks to a month and a half long, depending on your climate. And that's the only time that these things work. And you see guys like in early archery season setting up scrapes. And the deer are six, six weeks away from rutting. Even the bucks from going into their cycle, it doesn't do any good. Now, if you find active scrapes and you sprinkle a little doe and rut buck urine in there, you've got a charged up buck. He's looking for a mate. He knows there's one around and he can't find her. They become very susceptible to doing stupid things, just like all men do when they think they're going to be with a pretty girl. Okay? This can lead you into tactics like rattling. This can lead you into tactics like calling, grunt and bleat calling. There's actually a bleat that sometimes a doe makes when she's ready to breed. Um, but these are all, again, tactics that revolve around the rut. It's heavily used because most hunting seasons coincide with the rut, and it's in a time when a buck is most susceptible. It's also a time when it's harder to find does because the does that aren't ready to breed become very secretive, and they don't want to be around charged up, ready-to-breed bucks when they're not ready. So it's actually a time if you're a meat hunter and you're willing to take some does, it's a little harder to find does. And when you hunt areas where they do feed the deer, what you'll find is the feeder goes off, the Bachelor herds of bucks run in, they eat, maybe they fight a little bit, and they leave. And when they're long gone, the does show up. And, and if that's what's happening in a place where they're, they're artificially patterned, you know that is being magnified in a place where they're, um, where they're not being patterned at all. Uh, or are, their pattern's not being altered at all. Um, 
the things to think about, though, when you're out on your own, learning in the beginning, in the non-rut, you know, you're not in the pre-rut or the rut or even the post-rut, which is the pre-breeding, the heavy breeding, and then the end of that cycle where the, the bucks are still looking for more does, but the does are pretty much done. Um, the rest of the time, what you're really looking are what are the feeding patterns and bedding patterns? If you can find where the deer bed and you can find their primary feeding areas and find the avenues of ingress and egress, you start to develop a picture of what they're doing really, really fast. And bedding will be different based on where you're at. In an area with a lot of predators, deer tend to put a lot more thought into how they bed than an area that's light on predators. Um, where the predators are small, like let's say coyotes, a mature buck isn't that concerned. Uh, a doe with fawns is extremely concerned. In an area that's cold, you'll find a lot of times in the winter that deer will tend to build, to if they can, bed in really thick stands of pine because the pine needle is a good insulator. It blocks the wind. It keeps the snow off them. Um, but a lot of times in the cold, if they can find a place to bed that's on a south-facing slope, that's relatively secluded but not totally hemmed in the way pines are, they'll like to bed there uh, in the early day and midday because they're sucking up the sun. So they might have multiple bedding areas. So these are things to be thinking about when you're looking for their bedding areas. Uh, and, and everything for a deer, uh, other than breeding, which is, again, once like the time of the year, revolves around a couple of things. Sleeping, eating, drinking, and not being killed by something. That's it. So that's what you're looking. What are their feeding patterns? What are their bedding patterns? What, and think about the seasonal effects. So a deer might be really heavily relating to a stand of oaks and hickories in the fall. But there might be very little for that deer to eat in that stand of oak and hickory in the summer. There might be quite a bit of browse in the spring before the oaks leaf out and the underbrush comes in taking advantage of the light but once that's been browsed deer might move to far more of a lush edge habitat in the summer so what you'll find is even though the deer stay in a relatively small geographic block of land a mile or two square they'll often change the part of that territory they feed bed in and spend the majority of their time in based on the season of availability of food, based on the fact that they've got fawns on the ground that are really young versus fawns, you know, by the time you're getting a month or two away from most hunting season, fawns are still little, but they're up, they're moving, they can run, they can jump, they're far less endangered by predators, and they can move around more freely with their parents. Okay, so these are all things to think about that you're trying to figure out. You also have to think about two other big things. Peak movement times is a big one. In other words, most activity with deer seems to be in the first, the hour before sunup and the first hour or two after sunup. So that three hour window there and conversely on the other side, two hours before dark to an hour after dark. But what a lot of people miss is there's often a peak movement time dead midday, 12 to 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And that couples right into the last pattern component, which is what I call pattern disruption. What disrupts the pattern of the deer from its norm? In other words, yeah, there's coyotes. Coyotes are a constant, and the deer are always worried about the coyote. But 
is there a time of the year like hunting season when there's far more people on the land than there are other times? That will really change patterns. That deer that always, every day, gets out of its bed, gets up, takes a stretch, drops some turds, goes over, nibbles on this, nibbles on that, wanders off down to a field, eats in the field, takes a different route back, beds down in another area, picks up in the evening, goes back, and then comes back and beds in that first area for the night. He's done that for six months. You've seen him do it over and over again. All of a sudden, hunting season comes around, the deer's gone. Well, of course he is. 57 yokels went wandering through, chopping limbs off to set up their stands and whatever, three days before hunting season. That deer's pattern is totally disrupted now. And a lot of times... Deer are smarter than we give them credit for, so what will happen is deer looks at what's going on and realizes, well, everybody comes in in the morning. I sense them, I hear them, I smell them, and it kind of gets really quiet around 10.30 when everybody goes to the donut shop and, and, and goes and watches TV for a couple hours and comes back to hunt in the evening. If you are a person that hunts in wilderness where you go out and you camp and you're doing spot and stalk and all, You may really struggle with this one. You may say, really, people do that? Let me tell you, in a lot of environments, it's exactly what happens. The hunters move in. They hunt in the morning. By noon at the latest, the majority of hunters are out of the woods. They go grab lunch. They BS, and they're back on stand around 3.30, o'clock. Sometimes a little earlier, depending on the light cycles. And deer figure this out, and I've had great success sometimes hitting that window in midday. Get on stand or get in a position um, before everybody leaves and then wait for everybody to leave. Because not only will the deer use the, the hole in the pattern, the human pattern now, but a lot of times just the, the large number of people leaving a public hunting area will push the deer and make them move. And if you're set up right, you get an opportunity for ambush. So that's, that's another thing. Um, and when I look at this now, we're at about an hour. And I realize it's like quarter to 12. I'm 45 minutes away from an interview. Here's what I want to cover on the next segment of this. And this will probably be Tuesday next week. I'm going to cover a little bit more on whitetails. I'm going to cover uh, a similar analysis of squirrels. And I'm going to go through hunting tactics, including spot and stalk, still hunting, and stand and ambush hunting, and how they're different. I'm going to talk about how using this method can make you a really great hunter. And I'm going to talk about how you can actually then gain access to land for real hunting. So that'll be the next, this will be like part two of this uh, that we'll do next week because I've got a couple interviews uh, lined up for you this week. And then, of course, you know what happens after the interviews for the week. We get to Friday, Friday, Friday with um, listener calls. And I'll tell you that if you're a new hunter, that it may seem like I'm throwing a ton of crap at you here, and I am. And it, it is only scratching the surface, but it is the... Root knowledge that you need to develop your own skills. Your deer in your area will behave dramatically like my deer in my area. And they will also behave dramatically different. The pattern disruption is huge. What is unique to your area? What happens in your area? What noises or threats exist? Or what natural funnels exist and things like this? So next week we'll go further into this and we'll talk about actually setting up. We'll talk about actually getting out and scouting. We'll talk about all these things. But I had to give you this fundamental knowledge first. Why the hell does a deer act the way it does? And then understand that just about any animal will have patterns. Elk will have patterns. It'll be different than deer. Elk will hair them up. You'll have, you know, one bull with 30 or 40 cows sometimes. 
and other bulls trying to steal a few out of his harem. And, and they move a lot more. They have much bigger range than a deer. Mule deer I don't have any experience with at all, really, and they're probably somewhere between an elk and a deer for the way they act. Uh, I'm a whitetail hunter. Um, a squirrel, totally different creature. Whenever you get into hunting birds, totally different. Totally, totally different. But there's still patterns, movements. And that's what it's all about, is understanding how to read sign, read pattern. And if you can do that, you can start to actually develop a formula. And I believe that this this tactic can make people really good hunters in time. Because, like I said, the experience points. Let's, let's look at it again this way. You get out eight times to hunt in a season. You get eight experience points. Um, you pick this up and decide this is something that's cool. It's like I can be part of my, my health regime or whatever. And twice a week you take a walk, basically, at different times a day and do some patterning and sitting and listening and, and what have you. You do that twice a week for a year, and you take two weeks off, you got a hundred experience points versus eight. There's limits. When you are taking a shot, it's, it's something you have to experience to understand. It's not really true when you're not, you know, shooting at a dove or a pheasant or a duck. Not for me anyway. But when there's a deer, or even with birds, a turkey, a gobbler, um, or, or something substantial that you have to really think about and just puts a lot of work into it. It all comes down to that one second. The heart rate goes up. The adrenaline goes up. You have to get control of your breathing. You have to think. You have certain doubts. What if I don't do this right? You have to overcome them. Sometimes in your head you're already thinking, boy, that's a beautiful deer. My friends are going to be impressed. you got to get that out of your head. you got to control the buck fever, so to speak. You won't get that until you put a weapon in your hands. And if you want to feel it at a higher level, to an almost, it's almost an intoxicating level, take up bow hunting. Bow hunting, when you draw that bow back, you're hearing your heart pound and you're sure that deer hears it. Uh, the hackles go up, the hairs stand, things like that. But those are those critical moments of the hunting experience where the life and death decision is, is made And it's either executed properly or it's not. But it's not really what makes the hunt. The true hunt has all of this other stuff behind it. Knowledge and understanding. And if you, here's my thing. I've said this before when it comes to slaughtering um, livestock. People wonder why do I struggle with it at all. And it's because I don't feel that I've earned the right to take that animal's life the way I have as a hunter. Now, I actually have by providing a good life for it and things like that, and I'm going to eat meat, so something has to die, and I get that. And those of you that came to the workshop know that I've developed a method with chickens that's pretty damn uh, effective um, and about as good as you can put a chicken out. But I still am taking this helpless animal, um, and I'm removing its ability to do anything for itself. We're hunting. You have that critical moment where if you make one mistake, they win. And that's awesome. But what makes it possible is an understanding of where that animal lives, how it lives, how it functions, what its needs, its desires, its motivations are. Learning to be in touch with those things and be better at understanding them than the animal who lives that way. Whose sole purpose in life is to survive another day and reproduce. And they're very, very good at what they do. 
And when you meet them on their own terms, it's an incredibly rewarding experience. And you can do 99% of it without a gun or a bow. And it's the part that will teach you the most. So give it a shot. And if you have any specific questions that I can work into next week's segment on this, let me know in the sub in the uh, comments section today. Again, this is episode 1284, Learning to Hunt Without a Gun. And I'm adding right now, as I speak to you, part one of two. I literally just did that, hit save draft, so I don't forget to do it. Um, I have a cool episode for you tomorrow coming up, extending onto our hunting. How about hunting with a falcon? I have Chris the Falconer. Uh, really good guy, Chris Starr. I'm going to be talking to him in just about 40 minutes right now. And I'll have him up for you tomorrow about falconry and what it's like and how to get started with that. And uh, I have some other good stuff for you this week. And uh, then next week we'll be back with part two of this segment. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Yeah.